Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Uh, we have eight readers joining us this evening, as well as Switchblade Anthology's editor-in-chief, Scotch Rutherford. He writes about dark corners between the bright lights. An independent screenwriter and author, his work has appeared in Pulp Modern, Broadswords and Blasters, Shotgun Honey, The Iconoclash Review, Pulp Metal Magazine, and All Due Respect. He is also a contributing author in the New Clown Noir Anthology, Grease Paint and 45s from Down and Out Books. We're thrilled to have readers from Switchblade with us this evening. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome. Hey, let's hear it for Dylan. So I want to make a few announcements uh, before we get into the, uh, the players tonight. Um, Switchblade is a quarterly magazine, as you're probably aware. We're going to actually be scaling it back next year to uh, twice annual. Um, this year we've got uh, issues 10 and 11 coming out, as well as uh, Tech Noir, which is a, uh, a team-up issue with uh, Pulp Modern. So very excited about that. So look for that. Uh, around October time frame. So tonight, we have eight authors, including one author all the way from Sydney, Australia, a former detective, Mr. A.B. Patterson. So before I bring up the first reader, let me, uh, let me go ahead and uh, you know, go through everybody's bio. Are you ready? A.B. Patterson. This man right here is a Sydney author who tells yarns about corruption and sleaze. He's had a career of investigating crime and corruption. He's a regular contributor in Switchblade and is the author of two RCPI novels, Harry's World and Harry's Quest. Follow him at www.abpatterson.com.au. The appearances, his Switchblade appearances have been issue number three special which is no longer available online and only available here tonight and at our other readings. Issue number four and issue number eight. Ashley Irwin writes, reads, and slings. She carved out a book, a ballad concerning Black Betty, a couple of years ago. Two more are in the works and a ton more word grenades available at ashleyirwin.com. Give it a holler and it'll show you the way. She has appeared in Switchblade issue two. Andrew Miller is a crime novelist, screenwriter, and essayist. He lives in Los Angeles, and he appeared in Switchblade issue eight. John Zelazny is your typical stay-at-home writer dad, a graduate of Syracuse University and the U.S. Army Airborne School. He, he began his career in Hollywood with producer Joel Silver. I think you know who that is, right? Then he spent a decade in creative support of acclaimed director Yuli Edel. His short stories have appeared in Thuglet, uh, Literary e Eclectic, and the, the Binnacle and Switchblade. He, he's currently writing a novel about the British Ballet. He appeared in Switchblade issue seven. 
Rex Weiner is here. This man right here. Rex Weiner is the author of the original Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Yeah. Now available from Rare Bird Books. As a journalist, Rex, Rex Weiner's articles have appeared in Vanity Fair, the Paris Review, the New Yorker, LA Weekly, L'Officiel Omar, and Rolling Stone Italia. He is one of the founding editors of High Times Magazine and the former editor of Swank. <laughs> Weiner's screen credits include The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, based on his original stories, directed by Rennie Harlan and starring Andrew Dice Clay for 20th Century Fox. He appears in Switchblade, issue six. Renee Asher Pickup, right here, is a mellowed out punk rocker in Southern California. Her fiction has appeared in Out of the Gutter, All Due Respect, and other great publications. She is the co-writer of the novel Black Sails Disco Inferno, available now from Open Books. She is an acquisitions editor for Shotgun Honey and Bronzeville Books. She appears in Switchblade issue two. Speaking of Bronzeville, Mr. Bronzeville himself, Danny Gardner is here tonight. He's not reading, but he's in the audience. Lisa Douglas was the creator of the Grudge Club, an underground club that focuses on vigilante-style justice and has an album that she put out with a world-class producer, Mike Chapman, of Blondie fame. Lisa's photography has been featured in Vice's Guide to Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. She is a long-term contributing uh, photographer for indie magazines such as Nylon, Flaunt, and Vice. She has appeared in Switchblades issue four, issue five, Stiletto Healed, as well as being the editor of Switchblade Stiletto Healed. That's our all-women's edition, authored by all women and edited by a woman. That's available here tonight also. Richard Reisenberg, this man back here, was dragged in Los Angeles as a child and has been working there in a number of vernacular occupations since his teens while writing poetry, articles, essays, and making a general nuisance of himself, which is his forte. He's survived long enough to become either a respected elder or a tedious old fart, depending on your point of view. And he's still at it. It hasn't been easy for any of us. Uh, his appearances have been Switchblade Issue 3, Switchblade Issue 3 Special, Switchblade Issue 5, and Switchblade Issue 9. And that's everybody. You ready for your first reader? Andrew Miller, where are you? Okay, I'll be reading from my story that was in issue eight of Switchblade. This is Champagne and Bacon. Jetstream's word around the tub. I begin each morning with a bath. My second wife and I split up two months ago and I've been staying on the 31st floor of the downtown Weston. My name is Pete Zolochevskaya, Pete Zolo if you aren't good with long Russian names, and I'm a detective lieutenant grade three in the LAPD's robbery homicide division. I've got 15 years on the job, nine in RHD. How can a city detective afford to stay at the Weston, you ask? Well, I'm what they call a celebrity cop. 
I get royalties from books, movies, and TV shows based on my past cases, as well as consistent technical advisor gigs from the industry. That accounts for much of my added income. During my bath, I read a history book called Winston and Joseph. It was about the alliance Churchill made with Stalin to defeat Hitler. Histories about moral compromises for the greater good have always fascinated me. It's the good you do in the long run that counts. I always expect breakfast to be waiting as soon as I step out of the bath. Room service knows it must require two things, a full plate of bacon and a half-sized bottle of Veuve Clicquot or champagne of comparable quality. I am that rare Russian who doesn't drink vodka. This morning, as I ate and drank, I scanned through the times. On the bottom corner of the front page, there was an update about the Anna Safarian jewelry heist. What happened was this. Anna Safarian, the reality TV and social media megastar, recently separated from her rapper husband, Mahad Southern, was staying in a bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel with her three-year-old daughter, Spirit. At two in the morning, when Anna's security was thin, three armed and masked men invaded her suite. While Spirit slept in the next room, they zip-tied her and a bodyguard and made off with a gold and diamond Jacob necklace, two Cartier diamond bracelets, a gold Rolex that was Mahad's, and Anna's 20-carat diamond engagement ring. Their full haul was 10 million. To me, the case screamed inside, man. The crew knew Anna's routines. It was very possibly someone from LA, a player I could have encountered at some point. I wanted in. But my lieutenant assigned Ron Palmer and Jim Devery. Neither of these guys are bad detectives. They're just not aggressive or creative enough for a case this important. I was shut out. You see, Anna and I have a history, but I'll elaborate on that later. I was finishing the bottle when I got a call from the Bureau. A jewelry store owner had been shot dead in West Hollywood. Anna was alone at, the, at a table on the balcony, flanked by her security. All of Soho House watched her drink. I sat down. She sipped her vodka soda. She looked good. Her world-famous ass hung off both sides of her seat. I've been reading about the separation, I said. I haven't spoken to Mahad in weeks. You've been too busy posting pictures of expensive jewelry. I'm trying to revamp my brand to be more classy and respectable, like I've grown up. That was why I posted them. She watched me. You came when you could have just called. I smiled. I wasn't going to just call, not for this. Anna Safarian is seen across the world as ditzy and self-centered. That, of course, is accurate. But what most don't, most don't see is that she is great at using the emotional weakness of others as a weapon. The only person I can think of who is better at sniffing out this vulnerability in people is President Trump. It's a peculiar quality in many reality TV stars and makes me consider how far Anna will go in life if she doesn't self-destruct when she is still young. She was on the phone telling her nanny that she would be home for breakfast with Spirit. She got back into bed with me. So they put you on my case? A jewelry store owner got killed. That's my case. The guys who robbed you may be my killers. I'm here for that, but mainly to make sure you're okay. You could have said that before the sex. Like I twisted her arm. Going through what you did is no joke. She looked at my ring finger, once again bare. The heist guys, who were they, I asked. I already told the detectives, I don't know. You held out or you haven't thought hard enough. Nothing was off? Off? You don't have any suspicions about the people who knew you would be in that hotel with jewels? 
You won't get in trouble if you remember now. She waited. All right, yes. She waited again. I know who it was, just like I thought. Who? Thibault Lemoyne. Mahat and I split because he caught me and Thibault together. Who is Thibault Lemoyne? He's a French bad boy. He splits his time between Paris and LA. He's been to prison. Mahad walked in on us. TMZ would have paid a lot to know what Anna just told me. Thibault's been to prison for what? Robbing people at gunpoint. He threatened me. She sounded scared. Walk me through everything that happened, I said. He stormed into my room. His two friends were with him. You know who the friends were? I think they were his brother Henri and a guy named Rene. On the way out, Thibault took his mask off and told me he was going to release all the sex tapes we made together. Anna had two sex tapes online already. I had seen them both before we ever met. She later told me she had been the one who released them. Something like that out there in the world would scandalize you. I've got spirit now, Pete. I watched her face closely. She seemed sincere. She was in the other room when it happened. I can't have another tape come out after this. It would piss Mahat off, and I still want to get back together with him. Plus, I'm trying to change my act. I don't mean just another revamping of my brand. I want to behave more responsibly for all the girls everywhere who look up to me. I waited for the punchline, but it never came. A reformed Anna Safarian, what do you know? Why keep this from Palmer and Devery? The whole thing was scary. I'd like the jewels back, but losing them is no tragedy. They were insured. It's that the things I did with this guy I shouldn't have recorded. I really don't want the tape out there, she said. He'll do it. If they bust him, his buddies will put it out. They're twisted. I went to the trunk of my car for my gear and put on my Kevlar. Then I walked around the building to the back. There was a doorway with glass panels. I raised the butt of my SIG to a panel and smashed it in. The hallway before me was empty. A TV played somewhere. Henri Lemoyne appeared. He had a gun. I aimed for his heart and fired twice. Henri dropped. I stepped closer. This gave me a view of the room Henri just came from. Thibault was there. I made him raise his hands. He looked down at his brother's body. The jewels in the tape, I said. Thibault was frozen. A Glock 380 was on the table in front of him, the same gun Nikolai Karpov was killed with. I reached forward, grabbed it, and jammed it into my waistband. Listen up, I'm here for two things. The jewels you stole from Anna and the sex tape you threatened her with. Every copy. Thibault regained the power of speech. How do you know about the tape? Anna has friends. I'm here for her. I want my attorney. That's what you say after you get arrested. I haven't arrested you. I stepped closer. I'm LAPD and it's nothing to me to make you as dead as your brother. Where are the jewels? Thibault Galt. He looked ready to shit himself. Upstairs. And the tape? There too, in a lockbox. Take me. He led me up to a bedroom. The lockbox was on the floor of the closet. Open it, I said. He took the keys and opened it. Inside, there was a bag of jewelry and a camera disc. He handed them both to me. With my SIG on him, I looked into the bag. Anna's jewels were there, all 10 million worth. I held up the disc. Copies? There's one on my laptop, another on my external hard drive. They're both in my car. Other copies besides those? That's all. He looked too scared to be lying. Who killed Nikolai Karpov? He closed his eyes. Why'd you do it, I asked. 
He was supposed to buy the jewels, said he needed the money, but he changed his mind. He was too scared. We couldn't trust him to keep quiet. I pointed at the 380 at my side. This the gun you used? He said nothing. It was. You know, Anna and I dated too, I said. So she's got you here trying to scare me? She wanted the tape back, I said. She's a dumb whore with too much money. Not anymore, I said. She's trying to be a good mother. I raised my cig and fired twice into his forehead. He tipped over backwards. I kneeled over his corpse and put his own 380 in his hand and then used his dead finger to squeeze the trigger on one shot that I sent into the wall by the door. I went to Tebow's car, got his laptop and external hard drive and hid them in my car. Then I called it in. Thank you. So before I bring up the next reader, um, I just want to um, uh, let everybody know that we have a, uh, a sign-in sheet up front by the register. Um, so just go ahead and uh, put down your name and email, and uh, we'll let you know all about the, uh, the next live readings and uh, any issues that we're releasing. Um, this next reader, I think you're all going to enjoy, um, Rick Reisenberg. Okay, good evening, everybody. Well, as Scotch blurted out earlier, I've been published in three issues of Switchblade magazine. This story was none of those. Not only that, but no crimes are committed in the course of this story, but I think you'll find it still pretty noir. So it's called Off the Deep End, and uh, let's go. It was the kind of bar that would have had to struggle up several rungs of the social ladder to be considered a dive. Not that the clientele of the deep end, as it was called, gave a damn. There was a certain cachet to having the police walk through twice a night. The owner, a barrel-chested 60-year-old called Bud, would occasionally show off the scars nestled under his belly hair, the result of negotiations with dissatisfied customers. The shotgun he kept in his office was far from virgin. The Harleys leaning outside belonged to members of the Barons, the mere sight of whose emblem, a sword-swinging knight, was enough to quiet the braggadocio of less brutal thugs. The pickup trucks also lined up outside belonged to hard men who worked hard hours among the pipes and valves and gray hazes and the petrochemical plants nearby then put on range hats and Mexican boots and wandered over to the deep end to drink away the memories of the day. The bar was dark and loud with red vinyl booths, a scattering of tiny round tables crowding an even tinier dance floor, and feeble red and blue spotlights shining on a bandstand. Maybe the red and blue lights reminded the patrons of their many run-ins with the fuzz, inspiring that comfort bred of familiarity. I don't know. The stage hosted one of the primary sources of the deep end's loudness, the High Riders, a band for which my buddy Tucker played drums. There was no other reason I would go to that kind of bar. Tucker, who was himself somewhat bewildered at having ended up there, had asked me to drop by and watch a set. 
It was only 20 miles and a couple of universes out of my way. So I went, and with a girl, Kate Hamlin, my ex, who was still a hot date, though she had proved to be a terrible wife. And she could dance. The second set is always better, so I timed our arrival for the band's first break. By showing up half an hour after Tucker had assured me it was scheduled, I caught them just as they were winding up their rendition of Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. This was a song I detested possibly even more than Tucker did. And Tucker had said more than once that the song made him want to shove his drumsticks through his ears. He never did, though. It was a gig. You gave the customers what you wanted, and sometimes they paid you. The band was lilting away with graceless competence when we edged into the bar, the bikers ignoring the music in the dark corner they had staked out, the cowboys and their bleached blonde girls swaying dreamy-eyed and repeating the lyrics into their drinks. The high riders were a three-piece. Besides Tucker on the drums, there was a skinny bass player named Perry, whose pompadour and leather jacket were his daily wear offstage as well, and a 300-pound blind giant ensconced behind a mass of keyboards. He was big enough on his own to make them a quartet. This was Carlos, known as Big Chuck on stage. All of them sang, but Carlos was the lead crooner as well as chief of harmony and melody. Music was his life. Even the top 40 he played to pay the rent. Tucker had told me that Carlos owned 30,000 vinyl albums and could find any one of them by touch. Tucker and Perry led Big Chuck out into the night for the break, and Kate and I followed. Perry lit a cigarette while Big Chuck stood placidly in the darkness, his sunglasses pointed across the empty six-lane towards the gasworks. Tall street lamps pooled a strange yellow light the color of radioactive chicken fat onto the street, and strange clanks and wheezes inhabited the gloom of the gasworks. I got the feeling that Big Chuck was listening to it. There was no traffic and no one else had come out, except a couple of barons who were talking intently by the clod of Harleys. Tucker introduced us all around. You came at a good time, Big Chuck said. They have the ladies' dance contest at 10 on Friday nights. Give me a chance to jam on green onions. Kate perked up. Wonderful, I love to dance. Tucker snorted a little laugh. Tucker, she said, you know I'm good at it. Things are different here, Tucker said, but be my guest. Perry stood unmoving by the wall, staring at a battered Buick parked across the street while he smoked. We huddled together under the street lamp. Aside from the gasworks, there was nothing to see in any direction except the gray rectangles of cinder block factory sheds, squatting behind tall wire fences. Not a house, not a store. The deep end was the one bright spot in sight. Possibly the only one who could love that neighborhood was the blind man, who was still listening to the clanks and groans of the gasworks. After a long silence, Big Chuck shook himself and said, Second set. We filed back inside and sat down. Tucker and Perry led the big man to his seat behind the keyboards. The waitress brought him a beer, and Big Chuck leaned into the microphone. All right, he shouted, it's time for Off the Deep End, the Friday night dance contest. Who's going to win tonight? Your guess is as good as mine. 
Laughter broke out in the audience at this statement. Are you ready? He shouted. The audience emitted a wavering return shout of assurance. Okay, Big Chuck said, line them up. Several bleached blonde heads wobbled towards the dance floor with Kate's darker hair third in line. The better they dance, Big Chuck shouted again, the louder you cheer when they're through. Let's go! He mashed his hands down on the keyboard. Tucker and Perry crashed head-on into the chord and the music began. Big Chuck jammed well and was having the most fun he'd had all night, I was pretty sure. The rhythm section played on solidly behind him, but did not exactly look intense. The dancers were indifferent, just making clumsy figure eights with their shoulders and hips while boyfriends and cousins cheered. Kate took her turn and blew them away, smooth, sexy, and bright-eyed, and she get, got a good loud cheer when she gave her little curtsy and walked off. At the end came a pudgy blonde whose stiff helmet of hair would probably have survived a tidal wave. She received a cheer even before she started. And yet, she hardly moved, swinging her elbows in a short arc that barely left her ribs. She danced longer than the others, and at the end received a roar of approbation from the whole bar. Big Chuck took his cue and wound down the jam. He leaned into the microphone again. Sounds like we have us a winner, he shouted. Is it who I think it is? Bleary voices shouted back together, Carol! Ah, I knew it, he smiled. Carol it is, the champion dancer of the deep end. Bud lumbered out with a bottle of champagne and handed it to her while she grinned heavy-eyed back at the crowd. Big Chuck spoke over his shoulder to the rhythm section, who mouthed something back at him. I could see, Ka I could see Kate pouting, angry-eyed by my side. Bud came over and sat with us. He put his hand on Kate's shoulder. I know it's confusing if you're new here, but Carol, uh, how do I put it? She's kind of simple, you know? But the sweetest little thing on earth. And she's married to Cain over there. He nodded towards the clot of barons in the dark corner. A tall, rangy fellow with a clipped black beard and long hair stood with his arms folded over his denim. He was staring at Carol through his sunglasses as she smiled in the spotlight. What appeared to be a bayonet hung from his belt. Bud went on. You can imagine she ain't got much of a life, except for this dance contest every Friday. We all love her, and it's about all we can do. The bar mistress came over. Earrings, hair, and boobs all jiggled as she strode through the crowd. She set two glasses of champagne in front of us. It's on the house, Bud said, and clapped us both on the shoulders. Your girl danced real good. Up on stage, Big Chuck nodded his head. Tucker began a beat, and another top 40 tune battered our ears. Carol smiled back at the crowd while the music thundered and the red and blue spotlights flashed over her helmet of hair. She looked as happy as anyone I'd ever seen. Even Kane in his dark corner seemed to smile a bit. Kate's pout faded as she lifted her glass in a silent toast to Carol. I took my cue a bit late and did the same. Thank you, thank you. And not to get commercial for a bit, I'm going to get commercial for a bit. I've got uh, copies of both my novels on sale at the counter, as well as a business card from Crow Tree Books, my fake publishing company, and invite you all to partake of everything. All right.
Thank you all very much. Hey, let's hear it for Rick one more time. So, our next author is Renee Asher Pickup. I knew there was some Renee Asher Pickup fans here. Hello, I will be reading um, a story from Murder of Go-Go's, stories inspired by the songs of the Go-Go's, which is... Um, Benefits Planned Parenthood, if you pick up a copy. Um, unfortunately, I don't think there are any here, so I apologize for that. Um, the song I chose and the title of my story is The Way You Dance. You've been gone a year now, 12 months. Every so often, I catch myself missing you, and that's kind of funny considering how many times I wish you'd die. I'm moving on. I have moved on. Abe is nothing like you. I knew the only way through the grief was through someone else, but I couldn't stomach being with someone who had the eyes the same color blue as yours or the same bad habits. I couldn't be with a man who called me baby doll or who only ever drank on the weekends. Abe's eyes are the color of fresh-turned soil, and his dark hair often hangs in his face. He is slender but loud, while you are always the strong, silent type. He likes a stiff drink, but only one, at the end of each day. My friends like him, but they can't understand how we ended up together. They thought I liked men with broad shoulders and light hair, men with a dignified air who never said much but took care of business. They would have liked us together. It would have made sense to them. Abe doesn't really do pet names. I'm Babe. The last girl was Babe. And I'm sure the girl before her was Babe, too. I know it can't possibly be true, but it always felt like I was the only woman you called Baby Doll. I felt like the only woman in the world when I was with you. I thought no one else existed in your eyes. With Abe, I never feel that way. The world turns with us, not around us. The earth doesn't move. It's stable beneath our feet. That's not a bad thing, you know. I used to think it was. I used to think that passion and love were the same thing. But with Abe, my eyes are open. And with you, they were only ever closed, dreaming. Abe is happy in a smallish house in the center of town where we hi hire a teenager to cut our grass. He is happy in the house with me. This house would have never done for you. Then, I didn't really do for you either. Abe likes sturdy and stable things more than he likes flashy things. That's another way the two of you are different. He starts every morning with black coffee in the same chipped mug, and he ends every day with a little bourbon in a glass he picked up somewhere you would never shop. Your scotch glasses were crystal, weren't they? When I say something silly or out of character, Abe looks at me over his drink and arches an eyebrow, waiting for me to catch what I said so we can both laugh at it. With you... I guess I could have said anything. I thought that meant you loved me for who I am, but I'm beginning to think it was because I was incidental. The night you died, I was at your house. I watched you dance with her. I watched you brush your, her hair out of her face with your thumb. I watched as you did all the things that made me feel special with her. And it's funny, because from the outside looking in, it was so much easier to tell that it was all about you. Not me. Not her. When I told Abe how I really knew you, how I really knew who he was, he got up from the couch and poured a second glass of bourbon. I guess that means we need to talk. I forget that you knew Abe. I forget that he was the pharmaceutical rep for your office, a regular member of your Wednesday night poker game. I forget that he knew Ellie and loved her peach cobbler. I can be forgiven for all of that, though, because that was your fault. I was never allowed to experience that part of your life. If I had been, maybe I would have met Abe at one of your cookouts. 
He might have smiled at me, thought about coming over to say hello, but I wouldn't have smiled back. I would have been watching your arm around her waist, your lips on her cheek. If I had seen all of that then, would I have been smart enough to see that you were only ever dancing with yourself? The fucked up thing is, I'm at Abe at your funeral. I knew who he was. I knew what he'd done. He stood in the back with me. He said it was because he, quote, hated these damn things, but felt obligated to come. If I hadn't been so nervous, if I hadn't felt like anyone in that room could have looked at me and seen the big red A emblazoned across my chest, I may have realized that he was standing in the back for the same reason I was. Guilt. Knowing who he was didn't stop the tension between us from growing and shaking in the air. Grief didn't stop me from noticing the way he kept looking at the cleavage showing from the neckline of my black dress. I found myself standing closer to him than social conventions allowed for two strangers, but he didn't seem to mind. When he trailed his fingers up the back of my arm, respect for you didn't stop me from leading him out of the funeral parlor to taste his mouth. If I'm being honest, knowing what I knew might have made it better. When we got in his car, I think the idea was to find somewhere to go. We were being ridiculous, but not so ridiculous that we honestly planned on putting the seat back and fucking in the parking garage at your funeral. The problem was, talking between mouthfuls of each other, the windows fogged, and the parking garage was so quiet anyway. And Abe liked the simple things, like I said. So simply lifting the skirt of my morning dress was enough. Simply fucking him in the front seat of a sedan was enough. We went at it like a couple of teenagers and showed up to your wake, slick with sweat and flushed in afterglow. Abe sat down so calmly with that second glass of bourbon, I thought maybe he hadn't heard what I said. I said, I saw you do it. I know you killed him. Well, I heard you. We were having an affair. I figured, he said, taking a mouthful of the whiskey. How? The corner of his mouth turned up in the knowing smirk I have come to love. When you were hiding at the back of the funeral parlor like me, like someone who had done something to be ashamed of. You said you knew Ellie, but when you shook her hand, she didn't know who the hell you were. Abe's more perceptive than you ever were, too. If you'd been a little bit more like him, maybe he wouldn't have got the drop on you. He put the glass down on the table and leaned forward, resting his arms on his knees. So why now? Why bring this up tonight if you've known all along? I didn't have an answer for that. Isn't that silly? I think if I told this story to Abe, he'd raise an eyebrow and I would laugh at myself. If I told it to you, you probably wouldn't listen. You're a better listener now that you're dead. I bet you're a better husband, too. I just don't like having it hanging between us. And silent, silence built between us, filling the space that sexual tension had less than a year before. I took his drink from the table and sucked down a gulp of whiskey, hoping the burn down my throat would hit my stomach and turn into courage. I thought about turning you in for a long time. I said it knowing I was admitting those first few months we were together, when we couldn't get enough of each other, when the only time we weren't talking or texting is when we were tangled and sweating together in my bed, that that whole time I was thinking about ruining his life. I could have never hurt you the way I hurt him in that moment. You never trusted me with anything. Ava trusted me with almost everything. He stared at the table. And now? I shook my head. I couldn't. And that was the truth. As soon as I decided I wasn't going to do it, as soon as I decided I was with Abe for the long haul and loving him was better than anything that could come from giving you justice, I had nightmares that I'd be making dinner and he'd be sitting on the couch with his bourbon in hand and I'd see the red and blue lights flashing from the picture window. I wouldn't have time to ask what was going on before I heard the pounding on the door and a man saying, police, open up. I had that dream 12 times before it stopped. I just don't understand why you did it. 
My heart pounded, still aching from the knowledge that I had crushed some part of him when I said I was thinking of ruining him, even as he fell in love with me. Ellie paid me to do it. I wasn't expecting that. Ellie? Why? He laughed. What well, turns out it was you. Well, that's the truth, isn't it? It was me. I hung back in your bushes that night, and I watched you dance with her. I watched you make her feel like she was the only woman in the world. And when she left the room, I watched Abe sneak in behind you. Sitting with Abe in our living room for the first time, I realized that he didn't kill you. I did. I killed you that first night at the hotel. I killed you every time you told Ellie you had a business trip but spent the weekend between the sheets with me at a cheap hotel. I killed you every time I refused to delete a picture of us together. Oh, I didn't fill that syringe and jam it in your neck. I didn't pull a trigger or slit your throat, but I did it. Every time you told me you weren't going to leave her but I begged you to keep seeing me, I killed you. Abe, I love you, I said, my throat dry and tight. And this whole time, I have known the worst thing you have ever done. And what's the worst thing you've ever done? He relaxed now, smirked again. Was it fucking me at his funeral? He didn't ask me what I was doing there the night he killed you, even though he had to know that the only way I could have seen into your study was to be lurking in your backyard. He didn't ask me how often I did it or if I did it before you broke things off with me. Instead, he moved closer to me and took my hand. He shook his head and laughed softly, and I leaned in for a kiss. I didn't wonder, the way I often did with you, if he was only staying with me because I could ruin him. Before I bring up the next reader, I want to uh, point out our friend Javier. Come on out here. This gentleman is part of the Switchblade Outlaw film crew. He is our DP, and uh, the sound guy couldn't make it tonight. We were going to actually shoot the event. Um, but uh, we've been steadily uh, filming um, interviews with uh, many of the people that you'll see here tonight. So just wanted to uh, just wanted to give give a shout out to Javier. This next gentleman is uh, new to the uh, the Switchblade LA chapter. Uh, he appears in uh, issue seven. John Zelazny. Good evening. I wrote a uh, war novel. And the narrator of my war novel is Major Jennifer Mann. So you kind of have to imagine I'm a good-looking woman. Uh, Major Mann is a reserve army officer uh, in public affairs from Atlanta, Georgia. And in the novel in 2004, her unit is sent to Baghdad in support of the high command. And she spends her days coordinating with the international media. So this is a war novel about a lady with a really cushy job. The one time of her day that things get a bit real is uh, every day she has to go from the green zone, downtown Baghdad, to Camp Victory at Baghdad Airport, and you have to get there on 10 miles of unsecured highway. So she, every day she has to rustle up a Humvee and a couple soldiers and do this run. So this is a story of one of those days. <clears throat> Infinity steers us into the VIP lane at checkpoint 12 and a Latino corporal hurries over. A convoy just left 10 minutes ago. Let's go, we'll catch up. The guard nods and waves us through. I turn to the back and repeat my standard spiel for Tayshan and Danny. Gentlemen, Root Irish is still considered the red zone. Enemy contact is not expected but possible. 
You will keep your weapon at the ready and maintain an active visual survey of your fire sector at all times. Danny's made this run dozens of times, but Tayshan's practically a virgin. The road almost immediately turns to highway and infinity shifts into higher gear. By now, I know every tree and lamppost and span of wall along this road. I know every turn in the road and precisely how much time passes from one recognizable feature to the next. My vehicle has been shot at twice and struck once. In neither, neither case could we determine the source of fire. Traffic today is moderate. Got us another straggler here, Infinity says, eyeing her rear view mirror. Tayshan, Danny, and I twist around to check our six o'clock and see another orphan Humvee behind us. Driver waves and holds position about four car lengths back. I glance back up the road, but there's still no sign of a convoy, so glad we have some company. We're coming to the curve around the apartments just before the Anwar Bridge, mostly for Tayshan's benefit. I say, let's watch that upper deck. And before the words are out of my mouth, I spy the distinct outline of two men standing up there. Before I can make out much else, the looming buildings block our sight lines. Looks like there's a couple guys out there. Let's keep our eyes peeled for any weapons. Danny and Tayshan lean in for a better view out the windshield. Ten heartbeats later, we hit the curve. The bridge comes back into view, and with it are possible enemies. Two men, visible from the waist up, are indeed standing there behind the concrete abutment, watching the incoming traffic. Shit, what are they doing up there? We're approaching them at a steady 40 miles an hour. None of us take our eyes off of them. We close to 150 meters. 120. At 100 meters out, the man on the left suddenly ducks down behind the concrete abutment. Shit, what's he? Oh, fuck me! Infinity yells, and for some reason mashes down on the brakes with everything she's got. Four tires scream, and we're bucking and swerving and streaking rubber and down the highway. It's so loud and sudden and crazy, it doesn't register with me what the hell she's doing until I manage to take my eyes off the overpass boys and get a load of what's happening on the road below. It's a large crowd of Iraqi men, 60 or 70 of them. They're blocking both westbound lanes and have stopped an expensive-looking civilian car. Both, both car doors are open, and the mob is dragging out the Iraqi driver, a man in a suit, and his female passenger. Those not manhandling the prisoners have, of course, heard us squealing to a halt and are turning our way. Only then do we see that every single one of them is toting an AK-47. Strangely enough, I feel quite calm. Back up, Sergeant. Get us out of here. Infinity, petrified, jams it hard into reverse, floors it, and we fly backwards and almost immediately smack to a hard stop against the Humvee behind us. Clusters of gunmen are now breaking away from the carjacking and starting toward us, hesitantly. Not sure how many of us there are or what kind of firepower we're packing. Every passing second now is filled with too much information. The gunmen, struggling with the driver, hurl the man to the pavement. Three or four others level their AKs at him and open up on full automatic at point-blank range. There's a loud, solid roar. It must be a hundred bullets tear the man to roadkill. The woman wails in horror. Another carjacker puts a pistol to her head and executes her, and her body crumples to a heap in the middle of the road. So, here we are. Four slack-jawed, non-computing American eyewitnesses to a broad daylight double homicide. And more killers than we can count are stepping up their advance to us with mounting courage. Most of their AKs were pointed at the sky. Now they're lowering them in our direction. Infinity prays. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all the blessings we've known. Oh, here it ends. 42 years old. How fucking unfair. I'm sorry, Rebecca. Behind the mob, the Iraqi car explodes, sending smoke and flames billowing high into the air. The closest dozen militiamen are 20 meters away, sauntering now, like a street gang converging on a playground. 
Their first scattered shots come flying our way. I love you, Mike. Someone in our vehicle says, prepare to fire on my command. It's me. I said it. Love bullet dings our hood. First priority in an ambush. Clear the kill zone. Punch it, Sergeant. Infinity looks at me, still dazed in prayer. Punch it where? Straight through. Something clicks inside her. She rushes the sh rustles the shifter back into first and floors it. The Humvee fairly leaps forward, and all the big bad gunmen suddenly realize they're a tad vulnerable. Forty men in a pack cannot simultaneously scatter in every direction. Infinity plows into the thick of them, instantly snapping two or three enemy spines, and the bodies disappear under our hood. These human obstructions slow but do not stop us. We are full amidst the enemy and cannot survive. I hold, hold tight to these last fleeting seconds of my life. Fire, I rasp, just for the hell of it, and empty three short bursts of three rounds apiece into the wall of madmen outside the passenger window. Three or four are violently thrust away, and I taste their blood in the air as I draw my next breath. Behind me, Danny is firing as well, clearing a space beside Infinity's door. Out the windshield, 20 men are trying to literally grapple our vehicle to a halt, but Infinity is relentless. When we stall, she downshifts, wrenches the wheel, stomps on the gas even harder. I fire another burst. Two more men fall away screaming. A teenager raises his AK to my right, but pulls the trigger too early and lights up his buddy. We hit them too hard and fast. They can't organize. They don't know what to do other than hurl themselves at us. Their bodies close in anew. I got three bursts left. Twisting in my seat, I make them count. Gunmen all around us are screaming, shooting, and falling. Impossible to tell how many. My life ends in smoke and noise and the stench of cordite and gore. I hear Danny yelling in distress and look back. An Iraqi has seized his rifle barrel, forcing it skyward. Danny desperately tries to wrench it back. Wild-eyed, he looks to Tayshan. A little help here, sir! I don't know how Tayshan responds, because a bullet comes through the windshield, only instead of splitting my skull, it perforates my seat an inch above my shoulder. Infinity jerks the wheel hard to the left, slams Danny's assailant, who lets go of his rifle. I'd love to cheer, but there's still trouble on my side. My M16 is empty. I release the empty mag, feel around for my second, and recoil as powerful hands come grasping through my window. I draw my nine and fire above them, again and again, until the hands retract, writhing like creatures. I glance forward. We're still putt-putting toward the crime scene under the bridge. I look up where the two men were and see that one of them is now balancing something heavy on his shoulder, something he's pointing at us. Oh, God, it's an RPG. And at this range, Johnny Jihad is not going to miss. We need to motor now. Go, Sergeant! Go, go, go! Infinity swerves right, sends another gunman flying 20 feet, and suddenly the road ahead is clear. She slams the accelerator down, loops around the burning car, and we all duck as the last few marauders pour more shots at our side, and then we're under the bridge. The rocket man held his fire. Oh, shit, Infinity says again, her eyes locked on the rearview mirror. I twist around to see the second Humvee stop dead in the road, a dozen militiamen firing at will directly into her windows. Whoever those guys were, they're statistics now. I glance at the other side of the bridge, no sign of the RPG team. I face front. Both sides of the road ahead are dead clear. It means the locals were warned to stay away. First priority following hostile engagement. Ascertain possible casualties. Is everybody okay? My voice sounds strange. My throat hurts like I've been screaming. Was I? I can't remember. Infinity is fighting back tears. I didn't sign up for no shit like this. I got me two babies at home. I turn to survey the boys. Danny, you all right? He's staring hatefully at Tayshan, who's sitting stock still with his gaze fixed somewhere out the window. He didn't draw his sidearm, and he's cradling his M16 like an infant. What's your deal? Danny looks to me and critically. He fucking froze up, ma'am! 
His anger triggers mine. If I could reach Taishan, I'd probably clock him. Are you crazy? We could have been killed back there. My favorite captain makes no reply. I face forward again. I will not dignify his cowardice with any further thought at this time. We've still got six minutes to Camp Victory, and enemy contact is still possible. I should be radioing in a spot report, only I'm not sure I can speak coherently just yet. In ten minutes, I will walk into the talk and speak to the staff officers I see every day. They will be the same, and they will assume that I am the same, but I'm not. I just led three soldiers into battle. Knowing in my heart it was God's plan that our bodies be riddled with bullets and left to rot like all the other carcasses scattered along this highway. Infinity began to pray, and I did not. What does that say about me as a Catholic? My final thoughts, as I recall, went out first to my daughter and then my husband, whom I'm supposedly so ambivalent about. What's up with that? You think I'd be happy we made it out. And maybe later I will be, but right now all I feel like doing is telling Infinity to turn around so we can go back and kill every last one of those Haji motherfuckers. What does that say about me as a Catholic? I feel around in my blouse for my miraculous medal, but it's gone. Must have slipped its chain somehow in all the excitement. Public affairs, army cheerleaders. That was so 10 minutes ago. Now we're grunts. I am blooded. I want that goddamn combat infantry badge I'm ineligible for. The very theatrical John Zelazny. Now I want to bring up somebody who's not only an author for Switchblade, but also an editor. She is the editor of Switchblade, Stiletto Healed, the all-women's edition of Switchblade. Ladies and gentlemen, Lisa Douglas. Hi, you guys. Uh, I'm Lisa Douglas, and uh, this is not, I, I never think of this as noir. This is Linda and the Cocaine Chihuahuas. <laughs> All right. We met Linda for the first time at the hotel bar. Carmen and I were dressed like we were going to the real clubs. Linda was dressed in a sad gray suit. She was old in the way someone gets when they drink every day and still become 40. She tried showing me the lump on her hand over and over again. We just wanted to dance. It was the days of Madonna so we could dance all night. My friend Carmen wanted to get some drinks, but we didn't have any money. We'd used it to get in. Linda said if we were nice, she would get us some drinks. So... We were nice. She kept staring at us as we danced circles around all the suits. Linda had some cocaine, and did Carmen and I want to go do it with her? Sure we did. So we went somewhere, also in the San Fernando Valley, off of Owen's Mouth or one of the other Deep Valley streets, and went to Linda's tiny apartment. What was inside was just like the outside, ugly, dried up. The bedspread looked like it came from a Motel 6 and was badly in need of a wash. I sat on a chair just to be on the safe side. 
At that point, we were drinking wine out of a box. It was disgusting white Zinfandel, but we managed to choke it down because it was all she had. We took turns doing the blow, which Linda was rationing out as if it were the last blow on earth. Linda kept showing Carmen the tumor on her hand. She told us she was dying. We tried believing her, but the story didn't make sense. Usually you allow a, lot, a wide breadth of fake stories from the people giving you drugs before calling them on it. You really shouldn't be smoking then if you're dying, I said. What the hell would you know about it, she said. Well, how long did the doctor give you, I asked. You insolent girl, shut your mouth. I'm dying, I tell you. Who cares when? What my doctor said is none of your goddamn business. She said it with hatred. After that, tensions were pretty high. You think you know so much with your platinum hair and your big blue eyes, but you don't know anything. You'll see. You're just like me. You'll see. Maybe you'll get a tumor on your hand, too, and then you'll feel shitty for being such a spoiled, rotten little brat, Linda said. Carmen grabbed my hand. Be nice to my friend. We were walking downstairs. I examined my hands for tumors. The phone kept ringing, and then there were the dogs. The pit bull was locked in the kitchen behind a flimsy plastic gate. He was waiting for his big chance to kill us while the seven baby chihuahuas kept jumping up and down on top of us with their hurtful pointy toes. They licked at our faces and went for our noses where the cocaine had been. Carmen and I were squeezed together with the dogs on a high pack red velvet chair so as to sit as far away from Linda as possible. What's up with the dogs, Carmen asked. Uh, sometimes they find cocaine on the floor and they eat it. And uh, it makes them hyper, she said. Well, maybe you should be more careful. I whispered it. I didn't want any trouble. You afraid of Sam, she said. No, he seems nice. Angry, but nice, Carmen said. He isn't vicious, she said. She eyeballed me full of satisfaction that when she could let Sam out and he could kill us right away, then how would that be? We learn our lesson then when we were dead. While he ripped our pretty throats apart, she could do her cocaine in peace without any friends in the righteousness of God. Just like that, the woman in San Francisco who warned her neighbor not to wear perfume because her vicious dogs hated perfume, but her neighbor wore it anyway. And what would that woman stood trial? And she told the judge that she warned her. And the neighbor ignored her warnings and wore her perfume anyway. And that she died because the dogs went for the neck and killed her because the perfume. 
And there was a place in heaven for people who didn't follow directions like not taunting dogs with pretty perfume. The righteousness of God. Carmen and I kept thinking we were going to die from all the drugs and bad wine and the pit bull and the baby chihuahuas and the scary tumor lady. Linda got up to go to the bathroom and we took off, running as fast as we could out of there. We thought we were dying from the heart attack feeling of being chased. We imagined Linda coming after us with her dog, so we ran fast. We found the car but thought it was stupid to drive, so made our way to an all-night diner on Topanga. We ordered eggs and bacon and tried to eat our way down off the high. Since we didn't have any money, we dined and ditched after eating one or two bites. We roamed around Topanga for a while and made our way back to the hotel on Corbin. It was the same hotel where I took the Dale Carnegie courses, how to win friends and influence people. It was the one where I would show up drunk and still win all of the awards. There was a chick in that class who would try copying my speech after every time I won. One time I cried. I think it was because I was drunk. But I still won. I told the story of my aunt's alcoholism, and it included friends I'd known who died in drunk driving, accidents. Then the next week, this girl fake cried over fake things and didn't win. The door guy let us back in and told us Linda was back and pretty pissed off. He said if we needed any help, he was watching. She kept talking nonsense. How could we leave her like that? Weren't we like Benedict Arnold or even Hitler with our ferocious hatred? Who did we think we were anyway? Someone doing someone's drugs and not even saying thank you? And now you know where I live. I should turn you in, you little scamps. Friends, friends. We just didn't like the cocaine dogs, Linda. Sorry, we had to go. You're killing me. Look at my tumor. It's getting worse. My doctor said no stress, no stress. We tried to reason that we'd never even seen her before. It was only a fake club anyway, not a real club. And it was at a hotel in the Deep Valley. And we just came for sport because we were already drunk and didn't want to drive into Los Angeles. Linda kept going on and on. She was so high. And she kept screaming at the top of her lungs, you fuckers, you little bitches. The door guy told Linda she had to go, but she put up a fight. We went over to the bar to hide and look for more drinks and watched Linda get kicked out onto the street. Really, it was the parking lot of a hotel in the Deep Valley, so we weren't scared for her or anything. She just couldn't be cool and hold her liquor. We wondered if she was really dying. Do you think that's really a tumor on her hand, Carmen said. I mean, it is sticking out. How should I know? It doesn't look like a tumor. I mean, hands are lumpy, aren't they? I, 
I feel bad for her and her dogs, all jacked on cocaine. Carmen and I laughed our asses off because we couldn't help it. The, the door guy told us that Linda was kind of a fixture there. She told all the young girls about her tumor and then tried taking them back to her creepy apartment with the weird carpet and the weird smells and the boxes of wine. He said she would probably throw a tantrum all night long, but that we should just forget about her and not come back because she was really bad news. Plus, we had our whole lives ahead of us. She told us she used to have a husband, but that he died in some terrible accident, and that Linda was pretty and kind once, not all pinched and old from the drugs. We felt bad for her and then said thank you to the door guy. Linda was sobbing hopelessly outside. We said bye-bye and ran to our car in the pouring rain. Carmen started worrying from the drug guilt that Linda was all by herself and would die alone and the dogs would eat her. I told Carmen that she had to put bad thoughts out of her head right away. There was nothing we could do. But what if it's like in the Bible where everyone you meet is Jesus and like a gateway to God and this Jesus had a tumor and we made fun of him. We didn't make fun of Jesus. Shut up. I started laughing. You have to stop or I'm going to crash because my eyes are blurry. I was laughing. And then she started crying. We didn't cause her tumor. We didn't cause her sad, pinched face. Just don't worry. Let's go home. I turned on the radio loud and sped down the freeway into the night. I want to announce this next reader with great enthusiasm. This guy wrote The Original Adventures of Ford Fairlane. It became a movie in 1991, but I can assure you the original adventures of Ford Fairlane are nothing like the Dice Clay movie. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Rex Weiner. Thank you, and, and let's take a moment to salute this amazing independent bookstore, Skylight Books. And they're selling copies of my book up there by the register. Um, and I want to salute also my fellow authors, some of whom have come great distances to uh, read here tonight. Uh, let's hear it for them. Uh, Scott, you're a brave and wonderful editor and publisher. I really appreciate you, and I know everybody else here does as well. And I also want to salute you, the readers, who could have stayed home safe watching Netflix or some crap like that. But you made a choice. You made a choice to come here tonight. And so I'm going to give you a choice. How do you want it? Do you want it? Slow and smooth, or quick and rough? Let's see hands for the rough or the smooth. Ah, okay.
Ford Fairlane is a private investigator from New York City. He specializes in the music business. It's 1979, and Ford's in L.A., where Wanda, lead singer of Wanda and the Whips, has gone missing. Her manager, Mitch Mitchell, hired Ford as her bodyguard, but now he's been whacked, and Ford needs to find out why. He calls on his pal, Vim Vomsky, a rock critic loosely based on R. Meltzer. Who knows everybody in the punk scene? They meet at the Starwood, a big concert hall where all the best punk bands used to play before it was knocked down years ago. And yes, this is an excerpt from the original Adventures of Ford Fairlane. You're going to catch a good show tonight, Vomsky said. Darby Crash, he's great. I asked him about Mitchell. Mitch Mitchell? His specialty is taking punk bands that are good and rough, smoothing off the edges, rounding off the riffs, and turning them into mainstream pop bands that suck. He's responsible for every knack and cars clone in the city. He discovered a formula for turning gold into shit, and he's making a fucking fortune. Well, uh, does he have any enemies? Von laughs. Does the Pope Pogo? Mitch Mitchell is the Shah of New Wave. In more ways than one, I'm thinking. Well, who, who hates him most, I ask? Well, South Beach, those South Bay beach punks are pissed off at Mitchell because he ruined half their best bands, long-haired rockers of the Eagles variety. Hate him because he's muscling them out of the picture and just about every Coke dealer in town. Well, why is that, I ask? Well, Hoover knows he don't pay his bills. Just then, the crowd erupted in angry little knots. Darby Crash strode across the stage and picked up his mic from the stand. His mohawk bristled like a porcupine's quills. Dead animal skins and feathers dangled from his leather shirt and pants. Indian war paint streaked the shaved parts of his skull and pasty face. The band kicked off, and Darby's vocals boxed my ears. The crowd splintered in crab dancing, arm flailing, pogoers. Bodies ricocheted across the room. Vomsky and I retreated to the upstairs balcony. In the middle of Darby's set, two plainclothes cops walked in the door. You could tell they were cops because they were the only ones wearing wide ties. They scanned the joint knowing what they were looking for. The next thing I knew, Lieutenant Keeler of the LAPD Homicide Squad was introducing himself and a Lieutenant Chow at our table. He had to yell in my ear over Darby's music. I'll tell you a funny joke, said Killer. A guy was found dead in his office. He had three bullets in him, but he told us who the killer was anyway. Guess how? I said I didn't give a shit. Well, you will. You see, the dead guy wrote a name on and his phone number on his, on his notepad, and just as he was dying, the name was Ford Fairley. Not funny. This guy, he's got a warped sense of humor, said Vin. Shut up, growled Chow. Anyway, smiled Keeler, that punchline, the punchline is we're taking you in on suspicion of murder. Let's go, Ford. Well, going downstairs, I was wedged between the two cops. Vin disappeared just as we hit the dance floor. Darby Crash unleashed a brilliant rendition of Beyond Help. The crowd contracted massive epilepsy. Suddenly, the two cops and I were stuck in the mosh pit in the midst of pushing, shoving, writhing bodies. The cops were scared. They grabbed my arms and tried to move in the direction of the door. A body comes hurtling through space. It smacked into Keeler, bounced off, and slammed into Chow, sending them both to the floor. It was Vomsky.
About 20 pogo maniacs pulled on top, piled on top, still wriggling to the music and from the bottom of the pile. Then Vomsky poked his head out and yelled above the noise, Run, man, run! Thank you. Our next reader is all the way from Sydney, Australia. This, guy, this man is a former detective and uh, a novelist. His, uh, his two novels that are available right now are Harry's World and Harry's Quest. Ladies and gentlemen, A.B. Patterson. Before I hand the mic over to A.B. Patterson, I have a gift for him from Switchblade. All of us to you. <laughs> this is one of the new t-shirts that's available from Switchblade. That's www.switchblademerch.com. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, Scott. Uh, great to be here. Uh, great to be in your country. We're having a fabulous time. It's my first trip to the U.S., and I get to read, so perfect. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I would also like to say a very big thank you to Scotch and Switchblade for the invitation here, uh, and also for uh, having given me the opportunity to be published in, this, in the excellent magazine. Um, I'll, um, I won't give you the option between rough and smooth like Rex did. I'll um, stick with the smooth and slow just to hopefully allow you to tune into my accent, which I appreciate might be a little bit difficult on the ear. Okay, so I've uh, chosen tonight um, a, a new short story uh, for my PI, Harry Kenmare. Uh, I'm going to read a passage from it. Uh, the title is A Sex Kitten for a Cabinet Meeting. And Harry's assignment in this matter is locating the stepdaughter of an Australian government cabinet minister uh, who has taken to stripping. So he's tracked her down to a club. She bent down and kissed me on the lips. Nice touch, then she was gone. After my boner had subsided, I went back out to the main showroom and bought another drink. I stood at a tall table near the stage, watching the flesh parade and making sure I sipped real slowly. My body needed to be up to the Leona challenge. About 15 minutes later, as I finished enjoying the Thai girl's latest dance, I turned around to peruse the crowd. Leona was talking to a swarthy Arab at the end of the bar. She didn't look particularly happy. He looked as ugly as a hat full of assholes. The greasy leb grabbed Leona's arm a bit too forcefully to be a client. This didn't feel right. I didn't like it. Not out of jealousy. I just hated seeing women victimised. Sure, I loved as much pussy as I could get, but always enthusiastically consensual. A tall Russian girl in lingerie with a rack that would have converted Liberace to the straight team brushed herself against me, smirking. God, you're beautiful, aren't you? I just couldn't help myself. She smiled at me, of course. So, handsome, private show with Tatiana. The Slavic accent oozed sexuality like a tube of KY being squeezed. And I started barring up again. Alas, duty called. I smiled back at her, 
and discreetly indicated the slime ball with Leona. Who's that dude over there? Tatiana's smile evaporated. Okay, so the slime ball was somebody then. I, I can't say. Her eyes dropped. There are many layers of society in which cash is king, but none more so than the sex industry. I pulled my wallet out, slid out four fifties, folding them subtly, making my offer clear. Tatiana looked around furtively, then a hand slid over mine, deftly removing the banknotes. The touch of her flesh felt sensational. Another time, the cash disappeared in a flash into her underwear. I wanted to disappear in there myself. She leant in and whispered, that is Mahmoud, nephew of Ona, bad man, I must go. I saw Leona pushed into a corridor leading away behind the bar. She looked scared. She caught sight of me just as she disappeared. I looked around for security. There were two thugs in dark suits near the door. That was it. But they'd sure see me when I headed for that corridor. I looked around some more. There were two large young blokes sitting at the end of the catwalk, looking pretty well oiled. They were both muscled, suntanned, and wearing pressed chinos with R.M. Williams boots. Obviously farming lads here in the big smoke for a visit and sampling the specialities probably not available within hundreds of kilometres of their backwater hometown. I then looked to their left and spotted a pair of bling-laden Turkish-looking guys. Time for some sport to give me some cover. I stepped over to the hayseed boys and tapped one of them on the shoulder, bending down as I did. Mate, you guys are country boys, aren't you? The big face breathed bourbon over me. Why the fuck you asking, pal? Mate, relax. Just wanting to settle my curiosity. You see those two blokes over there? I indicated the two olive-skinned stallions. What about them? drawled the second bumpkin. They were having a good laugh. Said that anyone dressed like you two had to be a pair of fags. The farmers looked seriously grim and stood up. I stepped back and started sliding my troublemaking ass towards the bar. Oi, fuck stains, the first farmer yelled at the Turks, who both looked genuinely surprised. The second farmer joined in. Yeah, you two pretty boys, with all that jewellery, I reckon you two are the fucking fags. Yeah, you fucking wog cocksuckers, added farm boy one. And it was on. Shouting, broken glasses, battle. The goons by the door moved quickly, and all attention was focused on the brawl. I discreetly slipped past the bar and into the corridor. A staircase. I went up at a run into darkness. One of those times I wished I'd been packing my trusty 38, but I hadn't expected to need one in a strip joint. I got to the landing. There were three doors along a short hallway. Only one had light coming from underneath it. I could hear a man's voice loaded with aggression. It was that condescending virulence of a man who was used to abusing women. Then I heard Leona yell, no! In I went. The swarthy leb turned to face me. Who the fuck are you? Leona was on a couch, ripped negligee on the floor along with her bra. The leb pulled a switchblade out of his trousers. The steel glinted viciously in the light as the blade sprang forth. Shit. I needed to claw back some advantage here. Best bet was to make him mad, cloud his fine motor skills.
I smiled at him. Like picking on girls, do you? Makes you feel like a man? You fucking weak prick. He sneered at me. The bitch is mine. I'll do what I want to her. Now fuck off and mind your own business. Okay, plan B. Mate, I suppose with your looks, you need to force girls into it. I reckon when you slithered out of your mummy, you got a fair fucking flogging with the ugly stick. You really are one hideous Arab grease ball. The sneer was replaced by narrowed eyes. I'll fucking kill you, asshole. Progress. Finishing touches required. Mind you, back in Beirut, or whichever Alibaba shithole you come from, your mummy probably took it up the ass from camels. There were no words this time. Just a maniacal roar as he came at me, engulfed in rage for his slighted mother, and possibly the camel. <laughs> yes, thought that would do the trick. Most of these Arab blokes were complete mummies, boys. Actually, given just how ugly he was, I wondered whether maybe his mother had fucked a camel. I let him get almost onto me, and I suddenly jumped to the left, grabbing his knife arm as he lunged wildly at me. I kicked his legs out from under him, and he went down, me still holding his right forearm. I held his arm out straight and drove my foot into the back of his elbow. I heard the bone break. He howled like a Baghdad bitch. With these scum, there was no such thing as a clean fight. You needed to understand that to deal with them. So I sank my toe cap into his face several times, breaking teeth and his nose. I then stood back and took a huge swing with my right leg, driving my foot into his crotch like I was kicking for goal. Vomit followed the blood and tooth fragments coming out of his mouth as he shriveled into the fetal position. Leona yelped, behind you. I spun around to see a huge dark Samoan coming through the doorway. He obviously wasn't front of house staff given the gym gear he was wearing, baggy shorts, trainers and a baseball shirt. And he was fucking built. I'd seen old forest tree trunks slimmer than his thighs and his arms were like Godzilla on steroids. He lurched towards me, his bug-eyed face covered in malice. I let him get close and then ducked down. My right hand shot up the baggy leg of his shorts and I grabbed a pair of nuts the size of billiard balls. I squeezed and wrenched like my life depended on it. It did. He grabbed my head, which felt like being in a vice. But as I squeezed and twisted ever harder, his effort waned. He dropped to his knees, his face screwed up in the excruciating agony that goes with the ultimate direct assault on your manhood. Along with the expression, he was emitting a high-pitched whining. He looked and sounded like a rottweiler shitting out a house brick. As he keeled over into the fetal position, this was turning into a maternity ward, I let go <laughs> and withdrew my hand, desperately wanting to wash it. I was happy to smell a pussy, but sweaty scrotums were not my scene. But time wouldn't allow. Go get your clothes and make it fast, babe. We need to get going. She scampered off down the stairs. I closed the door to wait. Now, I know they say you shouldn't kick a man when he's down. They say all sorts of things. Get a good job, marriage, mortgage, kids, second marriage, second mortgage, second job. Nice steady run on the hamster wheel on the mundane road to death. But there are always exceptions to what they say. And the two thugs lying moaning on the floor around me were A-grade exceptions. I sunk my toe cap into both their gonads twice, hard. The leb managed to vomit again. Good effort, son. Neither of them were moving anytime soon. 
Leona reappeared with a bag. She threw her street clothes on and we headed out into the corridor. There was a fire escape at its far end. I pushed down hard on the release bar and the door swung outwards onto a metal staircase. At the bottom, Leona took my hand and we walked quickly out of the back lane onto George Street. I hailed a taxi. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, and I did bring some uh, books in my suitcase, so <laughs> if anybody liked them afterwards. Let's hear it for A.B. Patterson. Now on that note, you probably thought it couldn't possibly get more theatrical. You were wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, our closer, Ashley Irwin. Uh. This is just something I wrote. It's called Cherry Bomb, AKA Carnies in a Used Car Lot. Cherry woke like a bitch in heat with the back of her throat scratching to get fucked on a rear Sunday. A turn of events, so to speak, where a bastard skimming notes and little stashbacks of green caught those small taglines of ought to be owed tethered round unbeknownst corpse-like on his persona, as in the disposition for the misprediction of allocation of funds. And on this fine, fancy morn of a right prim proper reacquaintance, Cherry planned to pull the shiv from the teeth and take the shave type of debasement, wherein a rock cock palooza of gathering ticking time bomb clicking right clear from the get your engine started shot off the used car blacktop of Cappy's Chrysler and Dodge just there on Frontage Road. Just your ordinary easy peasy lemon squeezy sort of affair, really. A get your teeth knocked in by a set of shit chompers that were Calamity Jane hovering over a pair of medium meat thighs that belonged at the bottom of a broke bat bird beak that were bloodhound hunting across that gravel of old stained shit dubbed the lot. Where? That crooked ex-carny scrapyard McKay currently resided. That same swole-hearted bastard who'd gone about the changing of positions in life and found the proffering of used bad goods to be the column which now settled firmly in the gulch of forever after fucked. As in, this limping motherfucker who'd battled hookworm as a child and now hobbled three inches shorter on one side from the other were a mere snail sneer chug from Cherry's bag of bitches to be bombed. Bagged and tagged. Damn near at the beginning, that video done showed it. Zero in to tiny small screen. A handheld monitor carried by a new carny spot, old man Big Pod Pear King, who in the fashion of rounds on bog territory, as in a small encampment of should-get-torn-down silence of the Lamb's garage door pull-up storage facility, encasing a dilapidated shell of shacks housing things want to be lost but not forgot, which you guessed it, a ring-a-ding-ding, were the exact spot of Scrapyard McKay's imminent domicile thievery, where Scrapyard McKay were shown nifty thrifty crotch crab crittering from out of Cherry's locked door plot with a bowling ball duffel in hand full of things he ought not have got. 
the contents of which, not only the property of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang Cherry, but also that of her employee, Winnie Cruz of C&E Affairs. And like little Miss Raw Pie, surprise, sharpening clinks on her metal fangs, Winnie Cruz a dive into the murk type of gal, as in, these were the things said in retrospect to her happening on the site. And just like Boss there, carved, sealed, dipped in metal ore and stone, Cherry, not a likely movable entity. Fact, the sheer diligence with which the procurement of said film acquired numbered in no less than five fallen saps. Just wait, oh, here they come. Ambulatory sirening up the street. Old man Big Paw Bear King, his buttered bread bitch Bab, short for Barbara D, the dog who mind you already dead when Cherry hit the scene, the neighbor who it believed responsible for said death the fur love friend as the sign stapled to his rheumatoid chest spoke to as much, and Chauncey, the one-armed mailman Cherry bumped as she was fleeing. All of this course endearing a particular set of fuckery that lent bear witness on the brow of Cherry's furried head. The abridged version, hurry up, follow me. Occurring during the festivals of sleep, where goon squad swaddled in the carefree bundle of sheets, Cherry Sumo slammed through Bear Cub Cave, clipping measures of unsuited for future endeavors, therefore employment no longer guaranteed, and finding visions of ill derision in the act of carnal grunt fighting pleas against butcher block Cherry Carving, which landed first, and blubbered burst bust of little bear wife Barbara D, a collateral understanding, you see. Splitting sternum via impalement, which dropped open chest cavity, course allowing for main vehicle of destruction to begin. The assailed ascertainment of Scrapyard McKay's particular whereabouts. And now, since we're all cut up on the set, Cherry's frightful glee as her heart pitter-patter wicked witch of the West decrees. But by and by, a joiner fresh from the press clipped the ropes beside the ring. A carny Sputnik last-minute entry, Bully Boy McQueen, a.k.a. Winnie Cruz ex-best and floundering long time ago sex dean, spiraling out that red carpet of fiend plus the finder's fee for Cherry and her bombed back of things. See, having foreknowledge of the disagreement towards the dissolution of Happy Ever After McQueen Cruz deed, as in a previous compunction where Billy Boy there confessed to the stripping of coin from Winnie's house and givings, gathered steam in the forecasting of future moves. Hence, Cherry's finger clicking, switch, bowling ball, duffel igniting, kaboom, just as Carney hands search for play day exchange. No, no, you're welcome. All that was complimentary. about that? Ashley Irwin, ladies and gentlemen. Now, earlier, before we started the event, um, I handed out uh, tickets to people. Now, these raffle tickets are for some free items, um, some proofs and some t-shirts. So get your tickets out. I'm going to read off the winners. Do we have... Nine one one zero zero seven. Anybody? How about nine one one zero two three? Yeah. Michael, what's it gonna be? A proof? A proof, you got it. Uh also Nine one one zero zero two. Anybody? Okay. I'm looking for one more winner. Nine one one zero zero nine. Anybody? Finally, nine one one zero zero two seven. Do we have two seven? Anybody? 
So we got one winner. Um, all of our issues are on sale, along with um, the author's personal books up front. And uh, next to the register is a list, um, and we're looking for your names and your emails so that we can let you know about future readings. Um, we do readings at uh, the public library, other bookstores, bars, you name it. Um, so we, we, we want to uh, bring you back for each and every reading that we do. Also, we want to announce um, issues and special issues as they come. So, on that note, I want to end this on a little piece from a, a novella that I've been working on. Anyone with a hard dick and a pair of balls wants one of two things, to be a movie star or a rock idol. They're often mentioned in the same breath, but they're two very different things. A movie actor auditions to be part of someone else's vision. A rock star creates his own vision. And if he's good enough, he writes his own ticket. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.